Welcome to the Table Podcast. We hope what you hear today inspires joy in your heart and causes you to be convinced that God is good and He is for you. Enjoy the message. Yeah, I love getting to come and speak to the table. I get an opportunity to come here from time to time, and it's always exciting. It's always uplifting. Every time I come, I'm reminded that I'm getting older and older and older. And I'm not saying I'm old. I'm just saying my bedtime is coming very, very soon, and so I'm going to try to get through this quick. But uh, Siobhan asked me yesterday to come and share and uh, to talk about marriage. Through this month, we've been talking about marriage and uh, uh, my wife wanted to be here but we have two young children so she's taking care of them but she and I we are passionate about fighting for marriages and helping marriages and so we have over the last couple years we have done marriage talks we have launched Christchurch marriage retreats spoken to conferences small groups things like that we care about marriage is something that we deeply care about. So show of hands, I I know there's always one or two people. Are there anybody in here in the room who is actually married right now? Wade, who in here? All right, another show of hands, who in here is in a relationship uh, that the other person knows about? You can't cheat, it can't be an imaginary. Okay, a few of them, a few of them, awesome. Who in here came tonight to get in a relationship? No, I'm kidding, don't don't raise your hand on that. but I'm excited to share uh, with you tonight, and, and you may be thinking, okay, a room full of single people, why are you talking about marriage? Because the secret is the best time, the best time to save your marriage is before it actually starts. The best time to save a relationship is before you get into a relationship. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, that have never heard me speak, uh, I wouldn't say that I'm boring, but I would say this, I am a teacher by nature. I'm going to throw a lot of stuff at you. I love to teach. I love to study God's Word, and so I'm going to go through it. It may not be the most exciting, riveting message, but if you feel the need to to say amen, to say praise the Lord, to run a lap, whatever, do what you got to do. Um, <clears throat> marriage is an incredible gift from God. We're going to go through a lot of things uh, about marriage, but, but even if you're not married, you've all seen, like I, I could pass the microphone around, and every single person in this room, you could list off a litany of broken marriages that are around you, right? Broken, it's, it's possibly your own parents, your own family, toxic marriages, marriages that have disbanded, and on and on and on. We have seen the effect that toxic relationships have had. And even if you haven't gone through a divorce, possibly you've gone through a dysfunctional relationship and seen what that's done to your life. Have you ever gotten out of like a really nasty relationship and you're like, I think that relationship may have made me crazy. I don't know what happened. I thought I was sane when I was going through it, but now I look back at some of that junk I did and I may have lost my mind. Uh, Relationships, I'm getting way more yeses on that than what I thought. Y'all may need to all come sit and uh, go to counseling with me. I do marriage and relationship counseling. There's a story in counseling of a, uh, of, of, a, of a married couple that came to a counselor, and they started off, and the wife said, I had no idea what happiness was till I got married. And now that I do know, unfortunately, it's too late because now I'm stuck with this guy. And the husband said, well, I'll tell you this, my wife has made me religious. I had no idea what hell was until I married her. And now <laughs> I know marriages can be ugly, when they're not healthy. And, and, and uh, y'all are like, wow, that just got real. It is real. You know, uh, in, our, in, in our church, uh, churches are not 
are, are not uh, protected or are not immune from toxic relationships. And when you really get into it and see the damage that the enemy has done in marriages in our church and our community, it's it's terrifying. You know, I, I have uh, been married coming up on 14 years of marriage with my wife, and yeah, that's a that's a long time. <laughs> And uh, we got married. We had this big, amazing wedding in China, and it's, like, over the top. And, and we got all these people there, and it's super cool. And, um, and all these people, you know, we planned everything, and we did the traditional Chinese ceremony, and then we did an American ceremony. And it was perfect, and our marriage was perfect, and our love was perfect, and our life was perfect. And then the craziest thing happened after we got married. Uh, we got in a fight. Isn't that, isn't that crazy? And uh, honestly, I don't remember what it was. It was probably, since she's not here tonight, it was probably her fault. And, uh, and at that moment, all of my dreams for a perfect marriage came crashing down. We were going to be the different one that we worked it all out. And uh, as it turns out, we fought a lot our first several years of marriage. Not only were we different, we came from different worlds, different cultures. And I'm sitting there thinking, you're supposed to see the world the way that I see the world. How can she not agree with me? How can not this woman that I gave my life to not stand by my side and agree with every word that comes out of my mouth? I mean, she did commit her life to me, right? Uh, That is not a healthy way to do your marriage. But the truth is, in relationships, a beautiful thing for you to learn, but yet a hard pill to swallow at the same time is the person that you give your life to, the person that you commit yourself to, will not see the world the same way that you see the world. As a matter of fact, they will always see the world through different eyes than what you do. You are committing yourself to a different person. And with that, it may seem like a simple truth, but it is mind-blowing whenever you actually put it into practice, is that my wife's name is Abigail. Uh, Abigail will never see the world like I do. She will never be just like me. She will never fully agree with my view on different things in the world. And there's a beautiful thing in that and a beautiful thing in a relationship to say, I'm going to give you space to see the world through your eyes because I didn't marry myself. I married you. I didn't marry who I wanted you to be. I married who you are, and I'm going to celebrate that. But it doesn't happen. And that really goes back to the very first sin. We were created in the image of God, right? We can go all the way back to Genesis 1, 27. We're created in the image of God. Have you ever thought about the fact, I enjoy thinking about this, we were created in God's image. Uh, 1 John says God is what? God is love. You were created in the very image of love. You were created by and through love for love, you, you weren't created for grace. You were created through an act of grace, not anything we were deserved. So our very creation, our fabric, our DNA is to be creatures of love because we were created through, through love. We were to be creatures of forgiveness, of grace, because we were created through the very grace of God. God is love. There's a definition of love that I really enjoy that says love is giving a person what they need the most when they deserve it the least at great personal cost. I'll say that again. Love is giving a person what they need the most when they deserve it the least at great personal cost. And I would add to that marriage is doing that on a consistent 
basis, day in and day out, and day in and day out. There is love and consistency. Have you ever had friends or family members that said they love you, but they love you one day and don't love you the next day? They're kind to you one day and violent to you the next day. That doesn't preach love, does it? It preaches hypocrisy. Um, But love, authentic love, in essence, what does it mean by giving them what what they need when they don't deserve it at great cost? What is the great cost? The simple fact is love is stepping out of yourself into somebody else's world. Love demands you to step out of yourself in some form or fashion. Love demands some form of sacrifice, some form of lessening myself to make you greater, to lessen my desires or my wants or my comforts. I cannot love you off of my own couch and off of my own comfort. I can't say I love you, but if you're going to get with the plan, you got to come and get with what I'm doing. No, loving you is stepping into your world. God so loved the world that he did what? He sent his son. What was ultimate love? Love was Jesus stepping out of heaven and coming to us. Jesus said greater love has no one than this, that he lays down his life for someone else. Love is sacrifice. You can't sit back with your own wants, desires, opinions, attitudes, problems, and views and say, well, I love you, but you better look at life the same way I look at life. And don't try to change me and don't try to make me sad, but I love you. It's not love. That's selfishness. That's feelings. It may be lust, but it ain't biblical godly love. I'm just being honest with you. Love demands a level of sacrifice and stepping into other people's worlds. Somebody want to say amen to that? There we go. I like that. Humanity was created initially. Get this. We were created to be open, to share, to be vulnerable. Adam and Eve were created, and they were what? Naked, and they enjoyed it. And there was no shame. That's the best thing that they conclude with the whole story of creation when Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve at the end of chapter 2, and it says, and they were naked, and they were not ashamed. The end. That's how they finished the story. Amen. For a man, I like that. Um, and now, that idea of vulnerability is now the greatest, most difficult thing for humanity to express. Isn't that something else that, that we have replaced? And I'm going to get to some marriage tips. Y'all going to get it, but y'all can get a little bit of my heart first. We have created, we have replaced openness and, and, and vulnerability and grace with selfishness. That's what we have become. And so the people who tend to get the greatest brunt of our selfish behavior is who? The people that we love the most, the people that we are connected to, which are our family, our friends, our connections, and the people we're in a relationship with, and ultimately to our spouses. And so it's, it's amazing, and, and I have had, I, I'll just be totally honest with you, I'm not going to stand up here like I have all the answers. I have gone and repented to my wife years back when I recognized that and told her with shame that I somehow have grace for people I work with. I can forgive the people in my life, but I can't extend that same grace to my spouse, and that's shameful. Because we take, because we get comfortable with our family members. And so if somebody at work does me wrong, I'm like, hey, man, no problem. You know, Wade gets on my nerves. Wade's never got on my nerves. But I'm like, hey, it's, it's cool, man, no big deal. Then all of a sudden, if my wife does the same thing to me, I, I can't have that level of grace for the person that God has given me. And that's not love. That's selfishness. And that's the way we are. And so that's what original sin brought. What was the most natural thing for us to be and do became unnatural. We placed ourselves Above God, we replaced humility 
with pride. And honestly, we replace wanting to be with God to wanting to be like God. And that's why it is so difficult to actually love somebody else and step into a relationship and be healthy. You don't believe me? Let me share a few statistics with you. If you've ever heard me speak before, you know I really like statistics. Um, Approximately, marriage certificates are statistics are really challenging to get because there's a wide uh, array of of data and and it, it has to be in somewhat longitudinal to get it over a period of time. But the best that people can get is this. So get an idea. About 96% of Americans will get married in their lifetime. So most of us. 96% of us will get married. Depending on what statistic you look at, somewhere between 35 and 45% of those in their first marriage will get divorced. About half of those within the first three to five years will get divorced. Now, of those, another 79% will say, you know what, let me jump up on the wagon, let me jump up on the hog again, I'm going to try this thing again and go from marriage number two Whereas 35 to 45% got divorced off of marriage number one, 60% will get divorced at their second marriage. You may be shocked, but it does not get better. It gets worse. You know a percentage of third marriages end in divorce? Over 70% of third marriages end in divorce, and it gets worse and worse and worse. Um, So what's the answer? How are uh, the younger generation, the 18 to 29-year-olds, the millennials, how are they responding to it? Uh, Pew Research does some really remarkable uh, research, and they they did a question. This was just at the end of 2019, and they found, get this, 46, almost half, 46% of Americans felt that society is just as well off if couples who want to stay together long-term just decide not to marry. So because of this, 78% of people your age, 18 to 29, have decided this is acceptable for unmarried couples to live together, even if they have no plans of getting married. Of course, we call that cohabitation. Cohabitation in the past 50 years has increased 900%. So the institution of marriage has reduced. And why? Because couples have decided, and I hear it all the time, I counsel people in here, well, we want to test the waters. We want to see what's going to work. We want to slowly get into it and not just dive into it and on and on and on. But here's, here's the amazing thing about this lie is that the data doesn't produce, doesn't back up the premise. And so people say, well, if we live together for a couple years, that's going to make it better, right? Did you know that, that not even slightly, but overwhelmingly, people who live together for a period of time before they're married have a greater increase of divorce, lower quality of marriage, poor marital communication, and even higher levels of domestic violence than those who choose to wait? And so we can, we can justify anything we want to do, but if we look at reality, it is not the truth. But we live in an incredibly selfish generation, a selfish time. And so why do we live like that? Because we've decided that if marriage isn't working, certainly it's not us. If my last relationship failed just like the one before it and the one before it and the one before it, it's not me, it's the system. And so who's at fault? The institution of marriage is at fault. That's the problem. It's not me. And so that's why we keep hearing these falsehoods about, you know, we're just going to live together. We're going to take our time. We don't want to rush into things. But the truth is nothing supports that that's going to help you out in the long run. It's only going to harm you and reduce your risk of having a fulfilled, happy marriage in the future. God designed marriage and the connection and intimacy that it provides. He designed it from the very beginning. But 
unfortunately, whenever we say, you know what, I want that. I want marriage, but I also want to be selfish. (laughs) I want marriage, but I also don't want to serve somebody more than I serve myself. I I want marriage, but I don't want to give up the option to be able to walk away when things get ugly. And and when you want that, you will continue to see a trend of failed and toxic marriages, which is exactly where we are today, because everybody wants a plan B. Everybody wants an option that says, if this thing is going south, I better have a way to get out of here because ultimately it's about me and my happiness and my satisfaction. And when you leave the back door open, even cracked barely, eventually one of you are going to walk through that door. If you even hint, I can promise you in marriages, when they even hint at a fight about maybe we can just call this thing quits, maybe we can just get divorced, I can promise you, you give it enough time and that will become a reality. You know the magical secret between the couples that stayed together? I have asked and interviewed so many couples that were like 50 years married, 60 years married, and I'm like, what's your secret? You want me to tell you what the secret is? They don't have a secret. Most of them had the worst, most terrible marriage practices ever. Their secret was this. We just didn't think giving up was an option. And that's it. That's the secret. We just didn't think walking away was an option. We stuck it out. So no couples that stay together have no easier marriages than couples that separated. The ones that stayed together just decided to work through it. The ones that separated decided that their satisfaction was greater than the commitment that God had put them in in the marriage, and they decided to walk away. And so couples that stay together, they're thinking, oh, this cute couple of 50 years. You just see when they first got married. You think they weren't like every other young couple you see arguing and fighting and can't get along and problems and issues and, and her mama issues. and Of course they dealt with that. They just never said divorce was an option, and they stay together. And I'm not reducing the role of God in that. Obviously, we're going to get into that, but simply saying the fact that if we live in a, if we respond to this selfish generation by being selfish ourselves and with every aspect of our life, our faith, our commitment, our friendships, our walk with God, if we just say, well, I will do it, but when the inconvenience becomes greater than the benefit, I need a way to get out of here. If that's the way you live your life, you will live the rest of your life frustrated and angry and going from relationship to relationship. It's just reality. So what is a better way? I'm going to give you four myths and four ways that I believe the Bible wants to teach us that there is a better way. I love how, uh, you know, the famous love chapter, and I'm not reading it tonight, but the famous love chapter of 1 Corinthians 13. We all know that, right? Love is patient, love is kind, and all that. But I love that Paul is talking through all this stuff through 1 Corinthians 1 through 12, and right before he gets into that, he stops everything. He says, but now let me show you a more excellent way. It's like, you saw this, and you saw this, and you saw this, but if you look at the very last sentence in 1 Corinthians 12, he says, but now let me just show you a more excellent way. And what is that? Love. What else? That's it. And so tonight, I'm hoping to show you a more excellent way. I'm going to read out of Colossians. It is my favorite love scripture, Colossians 3, 13 through 15. This is actually, if you know my daughter, Reagan, this is my life scripture for my daughter that I pray over her often. And so it's near and dear to my heart. All right, y'all ready? Colossians 3, 13 through 15. Since God chose you to be the holy people that he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. 
Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves in love, which binds us together in perfect harmony, and let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. We're going to break down a number of aspects of that, but the thing that I love so much of this is the language there of clothing yourself in love. It's such a beautiful way to describe it, and the way that God explains it is in the same way you get up every morning and dress yourself, and you put on your shirt and your pants and your socks and your shoes. He's saying, if you want to live this kind of life of love that God has called you to do, that means every single morning you have to get up and make a conscious choice to clothe yourself in love. As in, it's not always natural. It's not always there. You may have it in the morning one day, but the world rips it off of you by the time you get to the end of the day. And guess what you got to do the next morning? I will make a choice to clothe myself in love today. What does clothing yourself in love mean? Clothing yourself in humility. Clothing yourself in God, whoever you put in my path today, I will choose to sacrifice myself to love them. And there's no greater person to love than the person that God puts right by your side, your partner, saying, I will clothe myself in love. I will wear it like I'm wearing the clothes on my back today. I will wear love. So I'm going to get into four myths. Uh, the first myth is this. It's the myth of compatibility. The myth of compatibility. We know that idea, right? Like, I want to get married God, please send me someone, so I need to find someone who's what? Who's compatible with me. That's why all these compatibility tests and dating apps and all that kind of stuff have exploded, uh, finding people who are compatible with us, or there's all these apps where I can find out what celebrity you're compatible with and all that kind of nonsense. Um, so we decide that, man, I'm perfect for this girl. I'm perfect for this guy, because guess what? We like the same music, and 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 I like that movie, and they do. And guess what? We both love sushi. Like, it's it's a match made in heaven. We can go on sushi dates every Saturday night. And, um, and maybe you're dating someone right now. You're looking for somebody to date who is compatible with you, meaning that they have the same interests as you, and they have the same likes as you. They have the same taste as you. But the reality is these things are not strong enough to hold your marriage together through the tough times. Because I can tell you this, I have an amazing marriage. I will put my marriage up against any marriage in this church. I, I, I love my wife, and she is amazing. My wife is better than any other wife around here. But if all we had together was like and sushi, <laughs> we've been through some tough times. I mean, we have been through some tough, tough, tough times. If I had enough time up here, I would share some of the ugly times that we've been through, and we have an amazing marriage. In our 13 years, there have been a couple times that I was like, I don't know if this thing's going to work out. I mean, it was rough, but these kind of things are surface, and they come and go. Who in here has the same music taste that you had 10 years ago? <laughs> Who has the same movie or food tastes the same. So I hope to God that your decision in a spouse is, I hope you enjoy the things that I happen to like right now in this season of my life. Because you won't even like the things that you like in this season of your life. Give it a few 
years. And so there's some positivity to compatibility. I get that. It's good to say, oh, you like this? I like this too. Awesome. That's cool. But let me tell you this. If you could compare two marriages side by side, okay? And so one marriage, couple A, if I bring them up here and I'm like, guess what? They love the same restaurant. They both order a number two at Wendy's. They both like the same sports team. They're both into the same hobbies. They're both into the same whatever. But neither of them have learned humility or self-sacrifice or rooting themselves in Christ. They just get along really, really, really well, and they're a super-duper cute couple. Everybody tells them how cute they are together. And then couple number two that literally don't have the same hobby. He has her hobbies. He has, that's weird, his hobbies, she has her hobbies. She loves spicy food. He hates spicy food. He's a Saints fan, and she's a Cowboys fan. Lord help them, but they can work through that. But nonetheless, they understand what it means to be rooted in Christ. They've given themselves to God first, and they just decided, I'm just crazy enough to humble myself every day and to serve you more than I serve myself. I can promise you 10 times out of 10, couple number two, year after year, is going to be growing and strengthening and deepening in their love, and couple number one is going to be coming back to the counselor every time saying, why is marriage so hard? I didn't know it would be this hard whenever I got married because they didn't learn to lay down self. And so there's a good thing with compatibility. It's nice to have the same hobbies, but I'm telling you, that does not put together a marriage. It just doesn't. My wife and I have an amazing marriage, and we have some things that we love doing in common, And awesome, we do it. And we have some things that we are totally different on. My wife despises basketball, like hates it with a passion. I used to be a huge basketball fan, but she can't sound, can't stand the sound of cleats on the floor. You know, when you're watching a basketball game, I literally never even noticed that sound, and it makes her so mad she wants to get in her car and drive around town until the basketball game is over. So we have some some very distinct differences in the hobbies, and you know what? That's the fun stuff in marriage. I love the stuff that we don't have in common that makes her different than me, that we don't see everything eye to eye. You know, the number one reason for divorce in America, irreconcilable differences. We're just not compatible. What does that mean? That means it basically goes like this. Well, we're not getting along now, so we don't get along anymore. We fight all the time, and so what does that mean? Well, that means we're not compatible. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means we're not right for each other anymore. What does that mean? Well, that means now we have to get divorced because there are irreconcilable differences. Compatibility is not the issue. Selfishness and pride is the issue. I can tell you this, if your future partner is exactly like you, you don't need them. (laughs) If you agree on everything, then one of you is not necessary in the relationship. (laughs) One of you will do just fine. There is a such thing as a healthy tension in marriages. It's a good thing. It's a beautiful thing to have a tension that we are challenging one another that I see some things this way, my wife sees some things this way, and there's going to be tension from time to time that are going to cause me to rethink my views and cause her to rethink her views, and on and on. That's how we strengthen one another. Um, We were created different. We have different ideas and different opinions. We see the world through different eyes. And so what's the answer to the myth of compatibility? 
It's there in Colossians 3 whenever he says, Clothe yourselves in love, and it will bind you together in perfect harmony. You find harmony through the love of Christ. It's not through similar music or tastes. It's through the love of God. And so when I choose to humble myself and lift you up as my spouse, and my spouse chooses to humble herself and lift me up when I want to see you be the healthiest version of yourself you can be and you want the same for me, then that love, that sacrificial love, that is what binds us together like glue. That's what brings us together and brings a deeper level of compatibility than just that surface stuff that's going to come and going to go. And my other married partner back there, Wade, will say amen to that. Um, That's something deeper. Number two, the myth of compatibility. Number two is the myth of feelings. You hear this all the time, right, that, that for you to question, especially in today's subjective postmodern society, for you to question your feelings is to question your very identity. And no, you don't need to question your feelings. You need to push in to your feelings. You need to go with what you feel in your heart. Follow your instincts. Follow your impulses. Follow your desires. Just live how you feel. That sounds fun, right? It sounds awesome until you take the mask off. It's not as pretty anymore. You think about the fact that our very society has to be structured around the fact of protecting people from doing whatever they want whenever they want. We have systems and police and government and on and on in place to do what? To protect us from our natural propensity to move towards anarchy. The simple fact is people apart from the love and the power of Jesus Christ tend not towards harmony but towards disharmony, not towards love and strength and unity but towards dysfunction and anarchy. Left to ourselves and our own devices, we tend to damage ourselves and uh, harm others in the process. And so living strictly off of the feelings of our heart is fundamentally flawed. Following your feelings may make a great social media post. It may make an awesome Instagram photo, but it will cause a self-serving and empty existence. I don't know if y'all are a fan of the movie Sandlot back in the day. I was a really, really big fan of that movie. And, and the kid that was like super fast because he had, what were the shoes called? The PF uh, Flyers. And uh, his name was Benny. And so there's one night that he has this vision or whatever it is, a dream. And the ghost of, stay with me here, the ghost of Babe Ruth. Has anybody seen the movie Sandlot? Come on. Okay, all of y'all. Thank God. And uh, the ghost of Babe Ruth comes to this little 12-year-old boy, and he says to him, follow your heart, kid, and you will never go wrong. I can tell you absolutely that is the worst advice you can ever give to a 12-year-old child. And there is beauty in understanding our passions and our hearts, but if we solely direct the path of our life off of what I feel at any given moment, we will not move ourselves to strength and union uh, and other things, we will end up in a bad place. What about if I don't, if you're in school, I don't feel like going to class. I don't feel like going to work. I don't feel like respecting my wife today. My heart tells me I need to go tell that guy what an idiot he is. I need to follow the feelings in my heart. I feel an attraction to a woman who is not my wife. I probably just need to follow that feeling. Maybe sometimes I'm having a horrible week and I feel like getting a ton of snacks and ice cream and just locking myself in my room and binging on Netflix all day long. Um, The fact is our hearts are not always the best guides 
for us. We are called to question it. Jeremiah 17, 9 says the heart is deceitful above all things, and it is what? It is desperately wicked. Who can know it? And so a life lived solely on base instincts and feelings reduces us to only our carnal natures. We're nothing more than a creature, any other creature on this planet. And when you do that, you deny the very thing that sets you apart from the rest of creation. And that is the image of God that he has placed within you. That he has created within you the DNA, the power, the spirit to love others greater than you love yourself. And when you choose that, no, all I'm going to do in this life is follow my own feelings and my own heart. And whenever I jump into relationships, it's going to be about what I feel. Then you're denying the very thing that makes you a child of God. I can tell you this, if you find someone who says, my life philosophy is I just respond to whatever I feel, whatever urge, whatever impulse, whatever desire, I can show you someone who without a doubt, their life has moved towards dysfunction, chaos, self-worship, um, and on and on and on. You know, I get to work with a lot of men, and, and I do a lot of men's retreats, and, and uh, I see a lot of men who are in their 40s and 50s and even 60s who had that philosophy in life, I'm just going to follow whatever I feel. And when things are good, I'm going to jump in. And when things are bad, I'm going to jump out. And the majority of these men, if I could describe them, uh, I would describe them as people who are most likely alone, have been through several divorces, strained relationships with their kids, jump from job to job, perhaps hot-tempered, maybe addicted to the bottle or something else, and they just love to talk about how they lived it up back in the day. <laughs> that is not the way to live life. Um, we can see the ridiculous of that in other areas of our lives of just following our feelings, but why do we think that it'll work out in a marriage or in a relationship with our spouse? It's just, I just don't feel like I love you anymore. Like, I, I think I've fallen out of love with you as if you fell into love with that person, as if love or is not a covenant, is something that we fall in and out of. But the reality um, that took me a long time to understand is that godly love does not reside solely in your heart. It's a crazy thing. You know, you think I love you with all my heart. I mean, it's a natural thing. And I thought that for years, but then I recognized that for me to healthily love my wife and to love my children and to love the people that God has put into my life, I have to love them with my mind. I have to love them with my will. I have to love them with my emotions. I have to love them with my spirit. It takes a whole lot more than my heart to love another person. And the feelings will be there and the passion will be there. But like you'll hear plenty of married couples tell you, there's plenty of times I don't feel like loving my wife, but that does not give me a day off. <laughs> that doesn't give me a day past to say, I'm not going to love you. That means I need to press in any more and say, my heart doesn't feel like loving you, but my mind tells me that I've given my life to you and I'm going to press in and love you any, even more because my heart will come back around eventually. Um, amen. You know, this isn't just a key to a successful marriages, but it's a key to growing in health uh, in the spirit of God. And so what's the answer? What's the answer to this feeling? Let's go back to this text in uh, Colossians 3. And so in, in Colossians 3, 12, he talks about that we need to wear these other things, right? Before he gets in love, he says you need to wear humility and you need to wear mercy and you need to wear uh, forgiveness and all that. And then when you clothe yourselves in love, then what's going to happen? What's going to rule in your heart? The peace of God will at that point begin to rule in your heart. I would even say rule 
over your heart. What is the peace of God? The Bible describes that the Spirit is the Spirit of peace. And so God is, uh, Paul is explaining that there's a more excellent way. You don't have to follow your heart. You commit yourself to love, and the, spe- and the Spirit of God will put peace into your heart. He will guide your heart. You don't have to be your own God. He's going to guide you through his peace, through the harmony that we all desire. Um, each of these kind of ideas points to one thing, you know, learning humility, learning uh, forgiveness, learning mercy. It all points to what the Bible talks about over and over again. Learn to deny yourselves and allow Christ to reign in your life. You will hear it all through the Bible. You will hear it all through the Gospels of Christ and him talking about deny yourself, lay down your life, drop your nets, follow me, give up everything, on and on and on. As we reduce our own will and choose the path of love, then God says, I will put my spirit of peace over your heart. Your heart is not going to be swayed by everything that comes and every feeling. Your relationships aren't going to be these crazy, toxic, up and down things. I will put my peace in there and I will guide you to a better way. The Bible often talks about the battle between flesh and spirit. You know, if you're saved here tonight, if you have a relationship with God, then you have the very spirit of God living within you. He has fully forgiven you of all sin, all failure, all issues, past, present, and future. But the fact is we are still living in bodies of flesh, and there is still a battle that goes on for our wills and that the battle of our most carnal natures are still trying to push us towards selfishness. It's there, but what is the key? The pathway to health and wholeness is through the posture of humility. If you say, well, I want to be whole tonight, I don't feel whole. I want to be healthy tonight, I don't feel healthy. The pathway is through humility. You don't get it by some self-help deal or getting some uh, man or woman in your life to fix it. You get it by dropping to your knees and say, God, I want, just like John the Baptist said before Jesus came, I want less of me and more of you in my life. And as we humble ourselves and allow ourselves to see Christ magnified in us more, um, as we put healthy boundaries in our lives, as we allow peace to come in our lives, as we decide that maybe I don't need everything I want, maybe I can say no to myself from time to time, uh, then that keeps our lives from careening out of control into the emotional gutters that many of us have found ourselves in from time to time. It also means that we have to allow the people that God has put in our lives and our future spouses and the people we're in a relationship with to be themselves even if they don't agree with us. Um, you know, I think about my wife. I, I do everything I can to celebrate my wife. I tell her I celebrate you. I celebrate who she is, not just who I want her to be, not the parts of her that are like me or agree with me, but just her. And I feel like part of my role as a husband is to champion who she is. I feel like part of my role is to help her find her voice. I feel like part of my role is to say, I want to help you be the healthiest, most true, purest, best version of yourself you can be. And whatever that looks like, I'm going to sacrifice myself to let you be the best version of you. And so every morning I wake up is how can I champion who you are, who God has made you to be, and who God has allowed you to be in my life. And that kind of marriage is not based in feelings. It's based in recognizing that I stood before God and I entered into a lifelong covenant relationship with somebody else. And I'm going to spend the rest of my life loving and serving that person with all that I can. That is marriage that's not based on feelings. Number three, the myth 
of happily ever after. Uh-oh. We are, okay, I'm, I'm just going to explain uh, every movie that has a love story in Hollywood. All right, so here's how it goes. Insert any movie you want. A man and a woman meet, and they're attracted, and they fall for one another. It's beautiful, but one of them, very early on in the movie, does something really stupid. Usually the man. They do something really stupid, and the other one overreacts and also does some stupid stuff, and it separates them. And then about an hour and a half of the movie is just various selfish behaviors and anger and hurt and almost getting back together, but then it breaks apart because he said something dumb, because she said something dumb, because he saw her hanging out with another dude, and on and on and on. They, they don't want to actually have a healthy discussion. They don't come together. They don't go to counseling. They don't sit down and practice some sort of selfless behavior and let's talk through these issues and weaknesses and maybe I treated you that way because of some insecurities in my own life and I haven't really gotten peace with it. No, none of that is happening. It's just nonsense back and forth and you're like, they're going to get back together eventually, right? So then, of course, inevitably, with about 10 minutes left in the movie, usually in the rain or perhaps on the way to an airport, when everything is going to end, they meet once again. He, normally the guy, shares all of his feelings and uh, what happens. Then at that point, do they discuss it and sit down and go, let's really talk about this selfish behavior and can we work through this? And this guy, No, it's just like it's overwhelmed with passion and emotion and feelings and they embrace and they kiss and then that's it. The movie's over because they have now learned how to live happily ever after. And all the problems that existed five minutes before he showed up, luckily, they're all gone now. Amen. And they worked it out. <coughs> I, just, I just gave you all the plot of every movie. Thank you, Jesus. Um, here's the issue. The issue, and we know it, is that the same selfish behaviors, the same insecurities, the same problems with forgiveness that existed before that moment will still be there the next day when the passion wears off, when the feelings wear off. The truth is that we are imperfect people. You know, we serve a perfect God who loves us unconditionally, but throughout our lives, every one of you have experienced various forms of brokenness. And you will continue to experience other forms of brokenness. And we are all on that journey, somewhere along that journey, in our lives. And so whenever we step into a relationship, when you get ready to step into a serious relationship, you are bringing a suitcase full of past problems, past relationships, scars, issues, anger, daddy issues, mommy issues, selfishness, and on and on and on. And we think that two imperfect people with a trailer, trailer load of problems are going to get together and form a perfect marriage. And it's just simply not the reality apart from the power of God. Imperfect people make imperfect marriages. Toxic people cause toxic marriages. Broken people cause broken marriages. Without the power of God, you are walking into something uh, preparing for failure. And that's where we have to demand the peace of God. We see that in the Bible with Solomon. I love this story. You know, we always want that romance and that, that passion and that happily ever after. And uh, uh, the Song of Solomon, anybody familiar with the Song of Solomon? And so it's this, like, overwhelming, like, love uh, book. And I'm, I'm going to read it uh, from chapter 4. Um, 
some of this language. So this is young Solomon, and he's writing to his impassioned lover that he wants to marry and be with. And he writes this. He says, you are beautiful, my darling, beautiful beyond words. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair falls in waves <laughs> like a flock of goats winding down the slopes of Gilead. It goes downhill a little bit. Your teeth are white like sheep, recently shorn and freshly washed. Uh, <laughs> it goes on and on and on. He gets into some other body parts that we don't want to talk about tonight. <coughs> so what happens? You know, I would encourage you guys, try some of those lines. Try that your neck looks like the Tower of David. I don't know. He's got some good, he's got some pretty sick lines in there. Now, Solomon grows up a little bit. He matures. He becomes wise, and he starts writing some of the Proverbs. Let me just share y'all some of the Proverbs a little bit later on in his life about a wife. Proverbs 19.13, a quarrelsome wife is as annoying as constant dripping. Proverbs 21.19, it's better to live in the desert with a quarrelsome and ill-tempered wife. Proverbs 25.24, it is better to live alone in the corner of an attic than with a quarrelsome wife, even in a lovely home. It gets even worse. If you look at the book of Ecclesiastes at the very end of his life, he's like, that's it. It's all meaningless. What's meaningless, Solomon? Everything is over. What happened to the woman that was beautiful beyond words? Like, how, how, how did she go from your eyes are like doves to where when I hear you talk, you sound like a leaky faucet? You are so annoying to my life is over and meaningless. Uh, <laughs> here's the thing. The, the, key, the key to a happy marriage, the key to, to any marriage partially is recognizing that you will go through seasons constantly, constantly. You know, my wife and I, our, our, our key is that we just put boundaries around what is allowed and what is not allowed. And that should be in a relationship from day one. And so even though we're going to kind of go like this, we're not allowed to go like this. Like there are rules. I'm not allowed to demean you. You're not allowed to demean me. I'm not allowed to talk about your past in an argument. You're not allowed to do that to me. I'm not allowed to say the word divorce. You're not allowed to say it either. I'm not allowed to go to bed by myself. You're not allowed to either. I'm not allowed to argue with you in front of our kids. And so we just put boundaries and boundaries and boundaries. And so even though we will kind of this parabolic curve, we will go up and down and, and weeks that we'll feel super passionate on top of the world and weeks that it's like, you're kind of getting on my nerves. I'm kind of getting that leaky faucet deal. I get what's going on here. And it's kind of up and down a little bit bit, but it, the boundaries have kept us in a safe uh, place, and we know that we're in a season that we're kind of getting on each other's nerves, so like, whatever, like, it's fine, I'm just going to keep loving you, and the passion will come back next week, and God protects us. Um, how you feel today is not necessarily how you feel tomorrow, and so we need to place our foundations in Christ and in the covenant that we made with each other, and so what does he say in Colossians about the happily ever after thing? Uh, going back to Colossians 3 and 3.13, he says this, he says, Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive each uh, anyone who offends you. Remember that the Lord forgave you, so you also have to forgive each other. Make allowance. What, is that? what does that mean? That means you need to store up money because it's going to come later. As in, they haven't wronged you yet, but let me just tell you what's going to happen. They're going to let you down, so you need to go ahead and build up that allowance now so you can pay for it whenever it happens. This, and it's amazing to me that this is Paul's perfect plan for love. This is Paul's perfect plan for the church, that even in a perfect plan, he's like, here's the perfect plan. They're going to fail you a lot. 
That's the perfect ideal church. They're going to let you down a lot. So go ahead and start saving up some forgiveness within you so you're ready to go. Because if they haven't disappointed you today, they probably will tomorrow. And that's really the thing that so many pre-marriages, and maybe you've been in relationships that have gone south because you weren't ready. You're like, why are you disappointing me? And they're like, I don't know, because I'm human. Well, why aren't you doing what I want? I didn't know my life was, was built on these expectations to make you happy. And so we have these unrealistic expectations of one another. And what Paul is saying is they're going to let you down, so build up forgiveness. Be ready. Make allowance for their faults. And so are you going to be happily ever after? No, but you're going to have joy, and love is going to carry you through the times of love and the times whenever they let you down. As I prepare to close out, the last one is this, the myth of completion. This is my favorite. So that's the idea of one of two things. One is, well, I've met this person, and they've got some serious issues now. But you know what? I'm going to fix those issues whenever we get serious or whenever we get married. I'm going to be able to fix my boyfriend. He's got some pretty big red flags And there's some pretty serious character flaws, and I don't think he loves Jesus. uh, But don't worry, when we get married, I'm going to work all that stuff out. Um, The reverse of that is this. I feel like part of me is missing when I'm not in a relationship. I need somebody to make me feel complete. I need a man or a woman to fill the void in my life. If I had a dollar for every time I heard somebody directly tell me to my face, I'm just not good at being alone. (laughs) I need to be in a relationship. And both of these uh, come from sadly perverted versions of something that God has put into every one of you. God has built within you a need for intimacy. Every one of us have a a, a yearning within us for intimacy. Aaron McManus quoted once, and I really enjoyed it. He said that our souls crave intimacy. It is the deepest yearning within us is to know someone and to be known by someone. It's deep, and it's not always necessarily a sexual marriage thing, but none of us wants to walk through life alone. When you feel like you're going through some something and no one knows you and no one cares and there's no one who really knows what you're struggling with and the deepest things in your heart, it is the emptiest feeling in the world because your soul craves intimacy. I need to know someone. I want somebody to know what's happening in my heart. And at the core, that is a desire for vulnerability, which goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. They were naked and felt no shame. They were vulnerable. The intimacy that you experience in marriage is an earthly reflection of the intimacy that God wants to have with every one of us. As a matter of fact, the majority of time throughout the Bible, when it describes God's relationship with us, it describes it like a marriage or a relationship between two lovers. When we are fully united with Jesus in heaven, Revelation 21 is described as a marriage. It's a huge wedding in heaven between the church, the bride, and Christ, who is the groom. And so the goal to a healthy marriage is not preventing divorce. The goal to a healthy marriage is pursuing intimacy. I can't stand it. It's like, it's like we're in this thing not to fall apart. Like, what's your goal in marriage? Who's going to try not to get divorced? Like, that is the most defeated mindset I've ever seen. Your goal is intimacy. And we can discover that intimacy whenever the burden is removed of impossible expectations or expecting another person to fill a void in your life. And maybe some of you have experienced that in dating relationships. And so going back, what's the solution on that? Um, In the previous chapter, we just shared about 
uh, Colossians chapter 3 in the previous chapter, before he even gets into loving other people in the church and all this, going back into chapter 2, he sets out our identity in Christ. And so in chapter 2, he's talking about our freedom in Christ. He's talking about that you have been freed. You're not under the law. You're not under sin. You don't have to be condemned. You don't have to have all these rules. You are totally free. Your identity is in Christ. You're a new creation and all that kind of stuff. And then in verse 7, one of the verses I love, he says, let your roots, let your roots grow down into him and let your lives be built on him. And then in 9 and 10, listen to this. You can read it later. Paul says this, he says, For in Christ lives all of the fullness of God in your human body, and so now you are complete. It's the same Greek word as the word perfect. You are now made completely perfect, whole, complete, through your union with Christ. Because he is the head over every ruler and every authority. So what's the, exa- what's the answer then to the emptiness I feel? What's the answer to my need for intimacy? What's the answer to this myth of completion? Is that we find our completion in our union with Christ. There's nothing greater than I can tell you in preparing for a relationship if you're there in your life today or, or in preparing for a marriage is this. Don't obsess yourself in preparing for it. You prepare yourself for a greater relationship with Christ. You put your focus not on yourself and what you can do. Put your focus on Jesus. Plant your roots down into him. Recognize that you are in Christ. That's an identity shift to recognize that I'm already complete if Christ is living in me. I'm not complete with a man. I'm not complete with a woman. I'm not complete on my own. I'm not complete doing this. I'm complete with Christ living in me. And now that I'm complete and now that I've established my my identity, now Christ can bring me somebody into my life because I'm healthy and I'm whole and I'm not going to latch on to that person like a leech and suck every bit of life out of them or let them suck it out of me like many broken relationships that I've seen. I don't have to rush it. I don't have to ask God, why haven't you brought me the perfect whatever? I don't have to force it. I don't have to coerce it. I just say, God, it's you and it's not me because I'm just here to exalt you. And you know the desires in my heart and you know that I want intimacy and I crave it and you know I want to be in marriage one day, but that's you. You know it, so bring them. I'm just going to connect myself to you, and I'm going to find my fullness in you and who you are. Amen. So the best thing that you can do in this season of your life, if you're not married, is to let your roots grow deep into Christ. And as you experience intimacy with God and how much he loves you, you discover who you are. You discover that everything you need, you already have. (laughs) You are loved. Marriage is a beautiful thing. I champion marriage. I love my wife. Let me tell you this, my wife does not make me whole. And God forbid if something happened and my wife were to leave my life tomorrow, it would break my heart. Um, I would still be whole in Christ. I'm just being honest with you. It would be. But the moment that you're like, I need a person in my life is the moment that you started off a relationship with failure. And that's how you see these relationships. And we've been in it. The second you find somebody that'll bite, (laughs) you are jumping head in to that relationship and not prepared because you're desperately craving that intimacy that you have not found with Christ. It's just the truth. Um, So we're not complete apart from Christ. We're made complete through Christ. Amen. Well, I want to close out tonight of just praying for y'all, praying for every one of you, and I'll be available later if anybody wants to chat or anything, or you know, y'all can feel free to sit around and linger. And I, I hope tonight has encouraged you a little bit. I know it's interesting having a marriage talk for a bunch of people that are single, but I'm telling you, 
uh, I'm 40 years old. I've been I've been doing ministry since I was 17, and uh, I've seen a lot of broken relationships, and I've seen a lot of broken people. And when I say a lot, I mean a lot. And uh, and relationships break is greater than anything else. I have seen people who were beautiful, healthy people who spiraled out of control into emptiness, darkness, depression, suicidal anxiety identity issues through a bad and toxic relationship because they were desperately wanting something out of that that God was wanting to give them. And so I'll tell you, if you're preparing for a relationship, just plug into God and find your wholeness and trust that God says, when you're whole enough for somebody in your life, I will put that person in your life. But right now you got some work to do and I can promise you another person in your life is just gonna do more damage than good. And so be patient and trust in me and I'm gonna do it in you, amen. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for your word, Lord. I thank you that you love us. God, I thank you that you've given us the desire for intimacy and relationships and love. And so, Lord, I pray that we can not be ashamed of that or not run away from that. But God, pursue it, but ultimately pursue that intimacy with you, you, Lord. I thank you that for those of us who are in you, Lord, that you have made us fully complete that you love us, that your spirit rests in us. And so for every person in this room, Lord, I pray that we can find value in you. God, I pray that we can know that we have worth, that we are beautiful, that we are made perfect, Lord, and that you desire us to have beautiful relationships and joy in our life that reflect that perfection. So, Lord, I pray for all these people here tonight. I pray that if we do have scars or wounds from past relationships, that you will heal that. And I pray that if there are people in this room tonight that are in unhealthy relationships, that you will correct that and give us the wisdom and the strength to make it be something that's God-honoring and um, and good in your eyes. And so we love you, God. We thank you for who you are. We thank you that you're a good God. In the name of Jesus, amen. amen. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. At the table, we are discovering Jesus together. If you were encouraged by today's message, do us a favor and subscribe to this podcast. That way you never miss out on future episodes. Also help us get the word out by sharing this podcast on your preferred social media platform. To keep up on what's happening in our community, you can follow us on Facebook at The Table or on Instagram at the table CCLA.